you'll notice that after the first punch was delivered to the independent economy by the lockdowns, you know, which which is a criminal policy, um, and I have no patience or tolerance for anybody who uh, thinks the lockdowns are okay, and anybody on the left who thinks the lockdowns are okay is uh, is beyond redemption, because the lockdowns are are catastrophic and having a horrendous effect on the poor people of this planet and especially people of color and yet uh, somehow they're okay with with people on the left ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace love joy and good health are the daily standard that's what this show is all about welcome to vibe and here's your host robin openshaw Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw. Welcome back to the Vibe Show. Today, I am joined by a very different kind of guest than we normally have. I have with me professor at New York University, Mark Crispin Miller. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Robin. So I heard about you because uh, Del Bigtree interviewed you, and he's a pretty big deal and gets like half a million people listening to his shows as he really dives into all the controversies around the COVID stuff. And my show kind of got hijacked by that kind of subject matter 12, 13 months ago myself. And so we've actually like almost shifted the demographic of who listens to this show Hmm. because it's all people who are asking the questions. You're asking the questions too, aren't you? Well, I'm trying to, uh, apparently it's uh, kind of a, taboo thing to do as my story illustrates all right so do you still have your job at nyu oh yeah i mean i'm a tenured professor i i've been at nyu for 23 years and i came with tenure so it would be kind of a challenge to fire me but um that's apparently what some people want to do um just for asking questions as as you suggest at the beginning how can we have so many educated people who are so, you know, advanced in their career and they completely 100% buy into the media headlines, hook, line, and sinker? How do you teach critical thinking at a university level? Like what, what kind of program are your students going through? Well, I mean, the, I, the program is one thing. What I do in my classes is another, you know, and that, that difference is in itself a subject worthy of discussion. And let me just say that, uh, you know, before I, I dive into my own, uh, tale, that, uh, it is, it, it seems to be especially the educated who are most susceptible yeah. to media propaganda. And, and this, this is not really a new, uh, insight. I, lately I've been rereading this amazing diary by Victor Klemperer, who was, um, he lived in uh, Germany throughout the Third Reich, and he was born a Jew and uh, married to an Aryan woman. So they didn't ever manage to exterminate him. And he lived through all 12 years of Hitler's rule. He survived with his wife, uh, lived beyond the war. He kept this incredible um, diary that I, I recommend strongly to everybody listening because it's weirdly... Um, prophetic or it's very relevant, feels relevant to what we're going through now. And one of the things he noticed in his diary, which which just minutely records his day-to-day impressions of real life, 
what he noticed was that it was often the most educated Germans he encountered who were the most anti-Semitic. That is to say, they'd been the most affected by the Nazis' propaganda. Whereas working people, average working people, weren't really that affected by it. And I have found this to be the same here in New York City, which I guess you could say is the epicenter of the COVID crisis when it comes to things like masking and so on. It's, it's around the university. It's the educated people. It's the hippest uh, people and those who consider themselves most radical, who are the most completely indoctrinated by uh, the mainstream narrative and the most hostile to, you know, any, any attempt to question it uh, or offer any kind of counter narrative. So I guess that makes a good jumping off point for my story, right? Yeah, it does. But I just want to comment before we launch into your story, which is what is a critical thinking program uh, in the academic arena? And then what is yours? What's your take on it? We definitely want to go there. Can I just say that you're not even the first person I've had this conversation with today. And I don't have anybody who really has a theory about why it's the most educated among us who are so bought in on the media narrative. Is it that they're afraid to be seen as a conspiracy theorist? Cause that's just so shameful for an educated person. I'm not, I no, like I can't even get anybody to give me like a decent theory why that is. I could have never guessed that if you had told me this whole thing would happen. Like, first of all, I wouldn't have believed that this whole thing could even happen yeah. the last 13 months, but I certainly would not have guessed that it's the political left almost to a one, not, not to a one. Cause there's certainly political left leaning people who are upset about maybe being forced to get, you know, pharmaceutical products that aren't even FDA approved or whatever. So there's a little bit of dissension there, but for the most part, it's like the political left who are the most committed to the media narrative. Why? Well, I actually, there, there is an answer to that question, or there are actually several answers to it. Cause I've thought about it a lot myself, obviously. I mean, I've, I've identified as leftist, uh, all my, adult life, you know, uh, I've devoted my whole career to, um, you know, trying to, uh, uh, reclaim and broaden democracy. You know, I fought media concentration for years in favor of a more decentralized democratic media spectacle. Uh, and then I went on to try and do something about our disgraceful voting system in this country. I mean, I wrote, I've written books on this, uh, our election Results bear no relation to the will of the electorate because we have the worst voting system in the developed world. And I'm, you know, passionately anti-war, believe in curbing corporate power, believe in civil rights for all. I mean, you name it, right? But I don't recognize this left. Uh, To me, this left is like the right used to be. And I find that often it's libertarians and conservatives who are more cordial and open-minded so, yeah, your question is a very good one. Why is this? Well, for one thing, there's been a very, a very brilliant, uh, uh, propaganda job, uh, accomplished by the puppeteers, you know, and we can speculate as to who they are. But when you've got the entire media, you know, from, from Amy Goodman's Democracy Now to the New York Times to 
all the TV networks, CNN, NPR, The Atlantic, you name it, right? The BBC, you've got all of them saying the same things over and over, often, more often than not, in complete opposition to the facts, all right? That doesn't happen naturally. That does not happen organically. That is a prop, that's a propaganda drive, okay? And the reason why people on the left can't see this is, Everybody thinks they know what propaganda is, but the fact is that the only propaganda they can really perceive is the propaganda that they do not agree with. So you ask anybody on the left, what's an example of propaganda? They'll, they'll say Fox News. Okay. But you ask anybody on the right, what's an example of propaganda? And they'll say uh, MSNBC. Well, you know, they're both right, <laughs> you know. They're both half right. The important thing is what they can't see is propaganda. So, so the right doesn't think Fox News is propaganda. They think it's fair and balanced. They didn't think Rush Limbaugh was doing propaganda. They thought he was just a commentator. And similarly, people on the left can't see the propaganda, which is actually vaster by far than anything on the right. They can't see it because they agree with it. They think it's true. It pushes their buttons. So. They're just not capable even of, of recognizing that it's propaganda. And now I'm going to narrow the discussion down from the left generally to the, you know, higher education, the professoriate, people with PhDs, professionals generally. That includes lawyers and doctors, you know, professionals, uh, have been well trained in higher education, you know, not just to learn their own respective disciplines, but also in a subtler way, they learn how to toe the line. They learn what issues to avoid, what questions not to ask. I mean, that's certainly the case in journalism. When you're trained in a J school, you know, you're not only taught the basics of reporting and so on, but you, you, you absorb a sense of where not to go. So you made a very good point sort of passingly a moment ago when you used the phrase conspiracy theory. Because indeed, nobody wants to be considered a conspiracy theorist because in the professions, it's like career suicide. You know, once you're tarred with that brush, once you're called that name, you are immediately written off as a kook. Okay. And okay. this, your listeners will be interested to know this use of the phrase conspiracy theory and especially conspiracy theorist. You know, once I started to be called that, and this is in 2005 because I wrote this book about the theft of the 2004 election. And it's a very solid book. It's very carefully researched. It was published by a major publishing house. It was uh, blacked out by the mainstream press. And weirdly, the left press attacked it as conspiracy theory. And this shocked me. You know, Some of these people writing these reviews were friends of mine. I mean, I'd written for these outlets. All of a sudden, I was being depicted as a lunatic. So this prompted me to look into the history of that phrase, conspiracy theory. When did that become a thing? You know, why are we all using that phrase? Why do people feel compelled to say, well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, right? And then they'll say something perfectly rational. Because it's almost like the worst thing you could possibly be, like you said, especially if you have advanced degrees for some reason. Exactly, exactly. So I looked into it and I discovered pretty quickly that conspiracy theorist was was never used anywhere in the media and conspiracy theory was only used now and then in the media 
before 1967. And all of a sudden in 1967, it starts, it starts to be used a lot. And it's used more and more over the decades until now it's embedded in everybody's mind. We've all internalized this, this inhibition. And it, it turns out that this is the result of a CIA uh, propaganda drive that began in early 1967 when all station chiefs worldwide received a memo. It's memo number 1035-960. People want to look it up. It's instructing them to use their media assets to attack these recent books that had come out questioning the Warren report on JFK's assassination. There were books by people like Mark Lane and Edward J. Epstein and others that were raising really good questions about the Warren report, which is a fantasy. It's fiction. And the CIA didn't want those books to have any influence, so they actually instructed their station chiefs to do all they could to discredit the authors of these conspiracy theories. And then they offered, you know, four or five points that the writers of these reviews of these attacks should be encouraged to make. And one of them was, and you hear this even to this day, well, if there was a conspiracy, somebody would have talked by now. You hear that over <laughs> and over again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would know about it. I mean, I read the New York Times. I'm exactly. a well-read person. I read the Atlantic. Like I'll, an Atlantic article literally takes you 20 minutes. So I'm an erudite person. There's therefore, of course, it can't be can't yeah, be true. Ex- exactly. And, and the premise there is that the Atlantic and the New York Times would report this if there were a conspiracy. But the fact is, they won't. And not only will they not report it but they will ridicule anyone who tries to talk about it as a conspiracy theorist. And you just put your finger right on it. People in higher education and the professions generally are proud of their training. They're proud of their degrees and they're very worried about losing their advantages, you know, being outcast. So the combination of arrogance and uh, economic and social anxiety it causes these people to cling very tightly to the media narrative. And this has been especially successful these last 13 months because it's, it's based on panic. You know, this has been an enormously successful campaign of fear mongering that started up in January of last year and really has never stopped. It's, it's raging even at this moment. And so my colleagues at NYU uh, are all terrified and they're all wearing masks and they all think masks work because the media says they work and because Donald Trump didn't wear one. I mean, that, that's the basis of their, you know, uh, decisions <laughs> on how to live. So I, I mean, this is, should I tell my own story? Cause it has to do yeah, with masks. No, but I, I'm still, I'm still too fascinated by this. Cause this is actually like a thread that I feel like we could go for an hour on this and we won't, but okay. So, so, Maybe what we're uncovering here through you, you put that really well is like PhDs and lawyers and doctors, people who've invested a great deal of time and money in their professional career. And they've kind of, you know, hit, hit the big time. Right. And, and, and you and I both have terminal degrees. So we could, we should sort of relate to that. Like we should, it's our, it's an identity. It's an important identity. I am Dr. Miller. Yeah. I, I am like my my audience has heard me say it like what what my actual education background is and I'm like it's actually sort of embarrassing for me to say that out loud right now because we're putting it in this context 
And you said it was so interesting. I literally wrote it down that they learn how literally through their higher education, which is ironic to toe the line. I only know that whole story of where the term conspiracy theorist came from. I was born that year, 1967, that that was uh, used in, you know, to um, by the CIA with regard to the Kennedy assassination. I only know what that is, Mark, because people started calling me a conspiracy theorist 13 months ago. And I was uh, like, what is this? What, what, like, I've never been called this before. No, yeah. no one's ever, like, it's not, that's not even a thing. So, and, and, and you're saying that the left went after you for your book about the theft of the 2004 election, which of course, any, anybody from the right wing who listens to my show, which frankly, there are lots of them. Um, are going to say, well, that's because they don't want people to know that they have been stealing elections. They don't want you to be beyond to their game and you can take that on or, or not take it on. But why did you and I, uh, like I, I, I started to stand on rooftops and scream about this and literally jeopardize my career. Why you and me? What, what is it? Why, why do our, our colleagues don't see it and gaslight us? And we are so frustrated. We're literally jeopardizing our careers over it. Well, I mean, I guess you could say that we're kindred spirits insofar as we believe in telling the truth. You know, that may sound quaint and naive, but that's always been my interest. And in, I mean, this is interesting now because um, I was trained actually as a literary scholar. I got my doctorate in English and my specialty was uh, Shakespeare. Right? My dissertation was on uh, the Renaissance. We are kindred spirits then. I have a degree in English and I'm madly in love with Shakespeare myself. Oh, we got to stop meeting like this. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So see, I I never took a course in media studies. I never studied communications in a program devoted to that. I I drifted over to that subject in a very gradual way and, and, and worked this stuff up entirely on my own. And it is, it is kind of based on my literary training because I believe in very closely reading, uh, texts, you know, uh, like poems. And, and then I switch that over to the movies, you know, and I teach a film course at NYU and I believe it's incredibly rewarding to, you know, learn how to read great movies really carefully. But then I discovered you could also do this with TV commercials and with, with propaganda. And that, that's not looking for different, you know, uh, meanings and, and, and levels of beauty, you know, that's about figuring out how subtly powerful interests can lie. Okay. So, you know, I'm kind of the exception that proves the rule. I wasn't, I wasn't trained to do the thing I do. If I had been trained to do the thing I do, I'd probably be a little more guarded about calling it as I see it. But I just jumped into media studies always, frankly, Openly saying, you know, I believe in this because I believe that a democracy demands that people generally understand what the media is up to, who owns it, what kind of influence do the advertisers have, how is it related to, you know, government agencies. So I was never interested in writing for an academic audience. I have a total of one academic publication that was in Milton studies, you know, way back in the 70s. I bet your students love you then. They love you because you're not like this guy in an ivory tower who's never worked out in the real world or paid much attention to it. Well, my students, I'm proud to say, 
tend to love me or love the courses I teach. And it's really because I, I am completely open to any disagreement and I encourage them to say things that they're afraid to say in other classes. I mean, I've, I've been accused, as I'll explain in a moment, of uh, forcing my crackpot views on my students but over 50 letters in my defense have come into the dean's office and many of the students say, Professor Miller's classes are the only ones where I don't feel like I'm being pushed to believe a certain thing. Whereas my colleagues are all good social justice warriors. And there's a kind of group think that they, they enforce. And yet they accuse me of doing that. You know, it's very perverse. But it is, let me mention a couple of books um, to your listeners that are relevant to what we're discussing. On, on, on the way that professional training, uh, makes for compliant professionals who don't rock the boat, there's a book called Disciplined Minds by Jeff Schmidt. Really a great book that I was actually, uh, hip to doing another podcast. The guy who did the podcast, Jason Bosch recommended it to me and it really is first rate. And the other book is called Conspiracy Theory in America. And this is a book I'm proud to say that I asked the author to write. His name is Lance DeHaven Smith. That's hyphenated. And he published an article on conspiracy theory and the CIA, which I discovered right after I had found out on my own that that's where it came from. I knew him from the election integrity struggle. And I wrote him and I said, you know, I'm editing a series of books for the University of Texas Press. I think you should write a history of how that phrase developed and became inescapable. And he did. And it's a great book, Conspiracy Theory in America. I recommend it, you know, every chance I get. Fascinating. Conspiracy Theorist in America by Lance DeHaven Smith. Disciplined Minds. We'll put links to those in the show notes for those of you who want to go go deeper on this. Okay. You know, I, I've... I've um, Del Bigtree is a friend and we flew him out for a protest that we had that 1500 people showed up to in Utah. I've run, I've run from the um, socialist state of Utah to the freedom loving state of Florida, freedom loving for now while they have this, while they have this governor, we were hoping that, that he doesn't get dominioned next year. But, um, (laughs) I, 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 you know, I, I sort of was leading the charge there. I'm probably the most hated Utahn, um, by elected officials. You know, they call me up and scream at me and hang up because thousands and thousands of people send my little one click letter campaigns and, and, uh, but, but Del Bigtree is a registered Democrat yeah. and he describes himself as being politically marooned. Another person who comes from, you know, maybe where you would have identified as before this and maybe still do. Um, is Allison McDowell. She's from Pennsylvania. Absolute genius. She yeah, yeah she's, she's terrific. I just met her in person at a rally the other day. And she, she feels the same. Like she just feels like abandoned by who she thought was her crowd. Do you, yeah. do you relate to that at all? I totally relate to that. Absolutely. I mean, when I was still wasting time on Facebook, um, you know, I was shadow banned there. So it wasn't worth the, you know, aggravation. All these people uh, who've been reading me for years, well, well, some people would, would, you know, uh, post comments, you know, what's happened to you? What, what's happened to you that you're saying these things? Wow. You know? 
And, and I would reply, nothing's happened to me. I believe in the same things I always did. Although I have to say, I've, I've modified my views on some things, you know, which is a sign that your brain is working. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm much more receptive to libertarian notions than I, than I used to be and far less inclined to dismiss conservative ideas, you know? Yeah, I am. I am too. And the funny thing is, is that before this whole thing happened 13 months ago, and it feels like the whole world turned upside down on a dime, my four closest friends in the world, we're all super liberal and it turns out I'm not, but I wouldn't have known that 13 yeah. months ago. I would have been like, well, you know, I'm kind of, I'm liberal leaning this way and I'm conservative leaning this way, you know, especially fiscal issues and whatever. Turns out my four closest friends and I'd never even thought about it before are super liberal and they have absolutely turned on me. I'm talking about sending me texts, calling me an anti science anti-vaxxer nutter i mean people that i've known for 40 years and never exchanged an unkind word with and i i still haven't said an unkind word to any of them but but um you know tom woods i interviewed earlier today he's in florida you should you should definitely follow oh, I, him. He, he, you know no, he's, him he's had me on uh, two or three times oh awesome yeah he was talking today in my interview of him about how 85 percent of what we read in the media is propaganda but what you're saying is that the lawyers and the doctors and the PhDs are far less likely to recognize it. But, but what about their knowledge of history? I mean, you, you started out talking about the Holocaust. Like who was it? Was it Goebbels or who was it who said, if you tell a big enough lie enough time? Well, anyway, I don't I, understand why they're not seeing it. Well, because it's because they don't really know any history. You know, they're not educated in history. And that's because history departments and history programs are managed by the kinds of minds we're discussing. So there are, there's an, a huge, this, this is the whole underside of modern American history is uh, unknown to them. And I'm talking about what, you know, people, I mean, people use the phrase deep state, but, um, you know, once you start to look into the role of U.S. intelligence agencies, and British intelligence agencies, you know, intelligence agencies all over the world, the role that they actually play in, 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 let's say behind the scenes of the spectacle we're all distracted by, you know, once you get a grip on how close their relationship is with the media, uh, once you read the memoirs of uh, some really honest, anguished former CIA officers that came out in the seventies, I mean, once you begin to study all this, you know, with your eyes wide open, you, you come to get a real grip of history. And it's, 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 it's precisely the history that you need to understand and to know in order to spot propaganda. See, these people don't know what propaganda is. They have no idea. As I said before, they think it's what the enemy says. It's not what our side says. If you so, want a really, if you want an interesting case study for your class, like, I don't know if this goes against the cult too much or what you think of this, but let me just run it past you. Mm-hmm. Five days before the Atlanta shooting, I posted on my Facebook page. You can go back and see, like, you know, I can't, I can't go back in time and post on Facebook. I said, watch for it. We have an, a, a mass shooting involving a lot of Asians coming very soon. Because, because it wasn't, 
Like if you just saw the media, all of a sudden there was all these Asian hate stories. And I was like, wait, Asians, what? Like they, they, they like out earn white people by double. They, they, they slay it everywhere. Like I've never, I don't even know anybody who's hates Asians. I'm sure they exist. I'm sure there's someone here and there who hates Asian people. Like, is this a thing? I've never even heard of it. All of a sudden it's in some media outlet every day, but it, but in a very sophisticated way, spread out over a lot of different media outlets. But if you read to the bottom, Mark, if you read to the bottom, there's a stringer at the bottom saying, please send me more stories like this. And I think that part of the way they throw off the intellectuals from being able to see the the scam is that they don't just work for one, you know, media outlet. Hey, you're the, you're the media professor. You tell me, I'm just telling you what I'm observing and what happened here. Yeah. And then you can tell me what you think, because I bet you have way more to say about this than I do. But it, it was just ridiculous how much Asian hate stories were in the, how many were in, were in the media. And I said that on Facebook and anybody can go fact check that, that it was like five days before the Atlanta shooting. And then you can't, and you know, like I'm not, I'm not really willing to stick, stick my neck out on conspiracy theory that I might put out there like that, that I'm not going to like speculate, like, did, did people actually die or I'm not trying to say nobody dies in these incidents. I'm just saying that was teed up. Well, it was. And, and I, I think you should overcome your, your inhibition. I mean, yeah. when these things happen and they're played up like that and they're suddenly on everybody's lips. Okay. That, that does simply does not happen organically. It's not a natural thing. It takes tremendous resources for a story to get that kind of traction. I mean, you know, if you've ever been involved in organizing anything politically and you've needed to make a splash in the media, you, you, you know that it's incredibly difficult to, to, to have a story take off like that. So, I mean, take Greta Thunberg, for example, you know, the lonely schoolgirl and her lonely yeah. vigil outside the school. All that stuff was handled from the get-go by a PR company in Sweden. And it's, wow. you know, t- tied in with some extremely powerful interests who want the green agenda, uh, for financial reasons. And they include some of the biggest polluters in the world, you know, so that kind of hijacked the environmental movement. Greta was everywhere. The Parkland shooting, same thing. These kids were on the cover of Time magazine. And that kid, uh, David Hogg, who was the most, uh, vocal of their, you know, uh, representatives, was really only spouting anti-Republican propaganda. So the whole thing was totally politicized. Uh, no, no, no. See, if, if you read, if you simply study the CIA's history at, um, you know, uh, toppling governments all around the world, you know, look at what they did in Iran in 1953. I mean, read books about it. Look at what they did. Look at the kinds of street fights they arranged, you know, between communists and anti-communists when in fact both sides were just Iranian gangsters they paid to play those roles you see this is this is kind of standard operating procedure for uh destabilizing governments and now to quote Malcolm X our chickens have come home to roost it's been happening here you know uh have you been been watching this woman who I think she's a freshman legislator she's just a house member and I don't know if she's from Georgia or what. And her name is Marjorie Taylor green. I mean, they are eviscerating this woman. 
Have you seen uh, her in the media at all? No, I haven't. I, I've, she's I've, very, very conservative. And she, she's just like, she hasn't been in that system for a long time. And you can tell, right? Like she'll just, just wear her heart on her sleeve and she'll get in front of any microphone and she'll talk about all the slaughter of unborn babies. Like she's not sophisticated in the way that she talks about her very, very conservative views. And she is being kicked off of every, um, every committee. They're, they're, they can't unelect her, but it's, it's almost worse than that. Like, have you, have you seen how many people on the right, how many people's careers are being destroyed right now? No, I, I you, have, but I have you have that. too. You're like, because it's not, it's you. I, that's so interesting. But Carol Swain, who is a conservative black, what is she for I bet you know her too. Former Princeton, I believe, professor Vanderbilt too. I think Princeton and Vanderbilt, I mean, this woman is this, I don't know how to describe her. She's just the, the classiest intellectual and she's a black woman. And she has this post in the last week where she says a black woman is being censored on Facebook. And for like a little second, I felt like offended. Like, what are you guys protected from that? Is it only us white people who just get constant? But, but it is. And, and I'm like, did you ever hear of Candace Owens? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's, um, you know, we're, we're circling around a very important aspect of our discussion here because I think one of the key reasons why, uh, the professional class and academics in particular have fallen so hard for the mainstream narrative on COVID is that the narrative has, has not really been only about COVID. It's not just about that. It's also been, um, completely intertwined with uh, social justice propaganda. Because you'll notice that after the first punch was delivered to the independent economy by the lockdowns, you know, which which is a criminal policy. um, And I have no patience or tolerance for anybody who uh, thinks the lockdowns are okay. And anybody on the left who thinks the lockdowns are okay is, uh, is beyond redemption because the lockdowns are, are catastrophic and having a horrendous effect on the poor people of this planet and especially people of color. And yet uh, somehow they're okay with, with people on the left. Okay. After that first punch was delivered, the second punch came after the George Floyd incident. Mm. And then all of a sudden the narrative shifted. You may remember this, it, like shifted on a dime from COVID, you know, as the, as the virus that was going to kill everybody to Black Lives Matter. And you had people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Mitt Romney and, you know, Goldman Sachs and, uh, Google, you know, and Nancy Pelosi, you know, all these plutocrats are suddenly marching in the street and saying Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter becomes this brand that's painted on streets and you can't get away from it. And they're marching and they're yelling and they're screaming. And then all suddenly it's all about race. Okay. Now, this is not because the predator class, the billionaires are suddenly all passionately interested in civil rights. That is not no. happening. It's not the case. No. And in fact, I live in, well, I live in Park City, Utah for years before I ran to Florida and all my neighbors had the BLM sign in their yards, even though I bet they don't have a black friend. I mean, Park City, Utah is like the widest place you've ever been. But do you know, do you know who it was? 
who taught me that Black Lives Matter is actually an organization that makes money on the backs of Black people to line the pockets of super racist leftist white people. Who told you? Who taught me that? Who? My Black husband. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, did he also tell you that they they received, I think, a hundred million dollars from the Ford Foundation? He tells me stuff like that. He tells yeah. me a lot of, he tells me a lot of stuff that I don't know, you know, especially if you're in your, not you, but just, you know, in the intellectual white world where you have to do stupid crap, like march in the street with a sign that says Black Lives Matter, which makes you feel really anti-racist because you actually know nothing about that organization and what it has done. That's right. No, no, actually it, it, it is, um, it is uh, antithetical to the interests of uh, black people, that organization. And it is, it is a, it is a kind, it's part of the propaganda war we've been talking about. When I say they've received many millions of dollars from the Ford Foundation, what I'm saying is that they are CIA supported because the Ford Foundation, like the Rockefeller Foundation, is a longtime conduit for uh, funds from the intelligence agencies. I mean, this is a history wow. that goes back decades. So, BLM has been a way to weaponize race as an issue. And um, that's why academics are so, you know, passionately devoted to the whole narrative. Because you may remember that as soon as the lockdown started taking place and masking became more and more of an imperative, anyone who objected to this would automatically be dismissed and attacked as pro-Trump, right? Because Trump, you know, and I think Trump has played a role in this whole thing. I don't know if he's aware of it or not, but it's like pro-wrestling, you know, and he plays the bad guy. He's the guy we like to boo. He says these provocative things and he'll say, you know, hydroxychloroquine is actually an effective remedy. And just because he says it, (laughs) everybody in the left says, well, that can't be true. When in fact, all this scientific and clinical evidence makes abundantly clear that it is true. It is an effective remedy. He happened to be right, but his saying it made it impermissible to go there. Okay. So it also became a thing all of a sudden. And this, this just blew my mind that if you're congregating and protesting lockdowns without masks on, you are deliberately trying to kill black people. I I heard this. I heard this on MSNBC. I thought I was losing my mind. That is completely demented. You know, if people are protesting lockdowns, it's probably because they're out of a job. And I noticed a lot of black people protesting lockdowns. Are they trying to kill black people? You know, I mean, the, the, the ignorance that underlies a statement like that is profound. You know, it, it, it is. It just, is. They have no idea how these things are transmitted how dangerous it is to gather, you know, people should remember, they have memories, that 1969 was um, a year of the uh, a severe Asian flu that I think killed more people than COVID has killed. And that was the year of Woodstock, you know, those half a billion people, you know, jammed together, breathing in each other's faces, you know, not washing their hands compulsively. And there was no, it was not a super spreader event because people were just going about their business because these, these respiratory illnesses pop up from time to time. They surge 
a lot of people get them or some people get them and then it starts to mutate and weaken and people get it and they're resistant and that's the end of it. And that actually did happen with COVID, but you'd never know it from the media because we've been living in a heavy fog of propaganda, uh, certainly for the last 13 months. And it has blinded a lot of people who should know better. They are educated. They, they presumably are capable of thinking, but Believe me, once you've inhaled enough of this smog that I'm talking about, it, it affects your mind. You know, you, you, you just can't function cognitively. You cannot take in counter evidence. I've tried, you know, I've tried to argue cordially and civilly with colleagues who were bemoaning the fact that students were going to come back to campus last fall, talking about them, describing them as hordes. Uh, deploring their sloppy habits. They're not going to be careful. You know, and I would weigh in with some scientific facts about the, you know, infectiousness of this disease, how students tend not to transmit it, that younger people don't get it. You know, that if you've taken enough vitamin C and your diet is good and you're not, not obese, you're, you're, you know, pretty likely to live. That if you catch it, you're pretty likely to get over it. And they just would become hostile. They would just say, you know, we're not interested in alternate science here, you know, and the stuff I was giving them comes right out of medical journals, but they, they could not take it in. They refused to take it in. And this has something to do with the attack on me at NYU, you know, that's, that's. Well, this uh, is, I, I just, my heart hurts thinking of how you've spent your whole career in service of students and education and teaching them to think, and then to have your colleagues all become zombies right in front of your eyes it's I, I i don't i don't live in the ivory tower where almost 100 percent of the people around me are are given to these things like i live with lots of conservatives my huge mormon family by the way Mitt romney is my first cousin none of us disagree we, we, we've all been shocked we've been shocked to see him doing his little black lives matter march and you know and he lives in park city too so he's literally huh. you know I mean, the Romney family is this huge, huge, huge Mormon family, but our, but our big Mormon conservative families, you know, we're just, we're, we're in shock watching the LDS or Mormon church get completely behind all the propaganda, social distance. You have to register online to go to, to church and, and, you know, and, and, and the LDS church is very divided over because there's a lot of people, a lot of Mormons who do think for themselves and they feel so betrayed. So I can't, I can't imagine how you feel, but so tell, tell us the story of what's yeah. happened with your career. You've been this, you know, like well-rated, uh, professor at this prestigious university. And then you just dared to step on this pile of cow manure. And then, then what? Oh, okay. So I, I teach this propaganda course here. I've taught it for maybe 20 years. At least twice a year, it's always full, you know, waitlisted and very popular. And I make clear at the beginning of every semester that I don't treat propaganda as an academic subject, you know, from the remote past, something the Nazis did, Bolsheviks did. I teach it. I mean, we talk about that background, but I teach it primarily uh, with an eye on propaganda in real time. because I don't see the point of doing anything else. You want to teach people how to see it, you know, when it's right in front of them. I, I point this out and I say that, you know, it's easy to spot the propaganda you disagree with, 
it is very difficult to spot it when you agree with it. Okay. Uh. So we're going to be looking at stuff that's going on in the present. And I want to warn you that it can be an uncomfortable experience. It can be very challenging to try to look impartially and objectively into propaganda that you agree with, because sometimes you're going to have to be willing to move out of your comfort zone. So you kind of warn your students, like there may be a little pain and suffering involved in what we're going to talk about next, right? Exactly. Exactly. I say, you know, as the semester proceeds, you'll be discussing some of the stuff that comes up in class with your roommates or your friends, your family, and you might get some pushback, you know, and indeed that's often what happens. So I, I warn them. And I also say to them very pointedly, you're going to hear me bring things up that will shock you which is to say I'm going to point to evidence for uh, various things and that's going to shock you. And all I ask you to do, first of all, is not believe a single word I say. I say this all throughout the semester. Don't believe me. Okay. Go and look into it yourself. Do the research, check it out. If I'm wrong, tell me, I'll correct my view. If I'm right, then you've learned something. So this is all, laid out very clearly. All right. This last September, we're, we're meeting on Zoom, okay? Which is completely unnatural and painful and tedious. Yeah. And I said, look how we're meeting. Why aren't we in a classroom next to each other? Well, it's because of the COVID crisis. Well, the COVID crisis has obviously entailed a great deal of propaganda. And I made the point, you know, propaganda doesn't have to be nefarious. You know, a campaign to get you to wear your seatbelt when you drive, that's propaganda too. So there's been tons of propaganda about and around COVID-19. And we could talk about aspects of that crisis. Specifically, I said, we could talk about the mask mandates. I said, you may be interested to know that all eight of the randomized controlled studies of masks in hospital settings have found that they are ineffective as barriers to transmission of respiratory viruses. I said there were eight such studies. There were actually many more than that that I didn't know of, but I said eight. I said, I would encourage you to read those studies and I would encourage you also to read the more recent studies finding otherwise. Okay. I said, now you're not scientists. I'm not a scientist. So how does a non-scientist begin to check the soundness of a study? I said, well, you can look for scientific reviews of a new study. They're often posted. And I advised, it's also a good idea to look at the school, the university where a particular study is done, because often you'll find that that university has financial uh, relations with Big Pharma or the Gates Foundation. That suggests maybe a conflict of interest. I, this is what I said. Yep. So we went on. And then the following week, uh, another student joined the class. She asked to join late, and I let her in. If we have time, I'll tell you what the one and only time she spoke up was, because it, it'll interest you. But putting that aside, I think the second day she was there, the subject of masks came up again in the class. And one of the students who was, um, you know, nettled by what I'd said had gone and read, see that there's a, there's a Canadian physicist 
uh, named Denis Rancourt, who published a compilation of seven of those randomized controlled studies. And I had recommended that they go to his collection of links and read those studies. Yeah, I remember that. And then, and then we watched for the next several months while they just papered over it all and just blanketed what the studies were that were actually in the medical journals that were done by scientists. They sort of just doctored it up and now you can hardly find anything that's not pro-mask. Well, right. Exactly. So this kid, this, this uh, other student had went and what he did was he went to Google. He did a Google search on the name of this French physicist, French Canadian physicist. And then he found an attack piece on the guy in psychology today. And he read the attack piece and he starts in class. He starts, you know, parroting what this guy had written. And, and the guy's attack piece was very misleading and deceptive and, and incorrect. And, and I, I said to him, you know, you can't simply jump to Google and then go read the first thing that comes up because Google is in part a pharmaceutical company and it has an agenda and they'll bury things and they'll highlight certain other things. You know, I was trying to make a point about that sort of propaganda. Yeah. Let me give you for your class, just because this would be such a good one that you just sit there and click on it and prove it because, you know, I have health and wellness site and all of us, all of us in health and wellness who some of us had 30 employees and we were just creating content and writing books. And, and, and we, we just got choked to death by Google in the course of two years before, before the COVID thing came along. But go just Google Great Barrington Declaration. The Great Barrington Declaration has literally tens of thousands of scientists and medical professionals signing, uh, basically a declaration about things like why can't we get access to hydroxychloroquine? Why is one of the most common, even over the counter in most countries, drugs, you know, banned for, for use for just this one thing for the first time in our, in 65 years of this drug exi- existing and some just really basic things like that. The Great Barrington Declaration. Well, guess what? If you Google it, you are going to have a very hard time finding the Great Barrington Declaration itself. Right. With hundreds of thousands of people who've signed it and tens of thousands of medical professionals, what comes up, everything that's above the fold is hit pieces right. on the Great Barrington Declaration. And then just for another fun thing, go just try to find something about something negative about Botox. There are women dying of Botox reactions. There are women who are having strokes and are debilitated for life. And, and the only way I, that you can find this out is if you find that Facebook group on it because you cannot find it. No, that's true. Uh, Robin, that's the case with everything. Uh, that's the case with Gardasil. It's the case with vaccines generally. Uh, it's, it, it, you know. Oh, it, you're it, way down the rabbit hole. I didn't know if I had to tiptoe about the vaccine thing with you or not. <laughs> oh, no, 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 absolutely not. Well, anyway, let me, let me, finish anyway. this. Um, so uh, we, we had this argument. The student who signed up late and who missed the first week heard this exchange I had with this other student and she flipped out. But she didn't flip out in class, you know. I mean, I'm used to that and I welcome that because it leads to a productive conversation. What she did was first, she called NYU's bias hotline and reported me and they quite rightly said, well, there's no bias here. You you just don't like something he said in class, so there's nothing we can do. She was so enraged by this that she went to Twitter and she tweeted 
that NYU should fire me for an excessive amount of skepticism around healthcare professionals. She was basically accusing me of putting them all at risk by questioning the use of masks. Okay, that's on Twitter. All right, that was obnoxious, but not that big a deal. But what happened next was a big deal. My department chairman tweeted his thanks to her. And remember, she, she, now wait, she had asked that I be fired and he tweeted, and this is verbatim, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. That was his public response. He hadn't even talked to me. Okay. Then he calls me up and, and asks me, did you tell the students in your class not to wear masks? And I said, no. In fact, I told them pointedly, I am not telling you not to wear masks. I actually said that. I said, this is an intellectual exercise. If NYU demands masks, uh, wear masks, you know, it's up to you. This is not about what you do. This is about how to think about things and research them. Right. So right, he, you're, right. you're doing, you're doing what you were actually hired to do. Well, so I, yes, I thought so anyway. So he said, well, I'm going to have to tell, uh, you know, I said I had them read this and I had them read that. I said, I'm going to have to tell the COVID uh, task force or whatever. I said, all right. And then I think he mentioned that a student had had gone to Twitter and was unhappy with what she'd heard. That's how I heard about it. And I went and I saw, you know, that he had tweeted his thanks. And she she tweeted, it was a barrage of tweets from her, all attacking me, all vilifying me with screenshots from my website, which is called News from Underground, which, you know, uh, I send out uh, every day to my listserv all kinds of information and stories and commentary that, that the media and Google censor. And you can go there. It's at markcrispinmiller.com. And you can sign up to get those emails if you want. She went to the website, took all these screenshots of, of various articles, and then presented them on Twitter as self-evidently false. And she said they all came from far-right and conspiracy websites. You know, this is stuff like the high wire and technocracy and global research, and none of them are far right. But she was just enraged. She was beside herself with rage. And my chair actually said that they were taking steps as a department to make sure what she wanted to have happen to me happen. So I yeah, said, that, I mean, that sounds like a, a very passive aggressive veiled threat about your career. That, that there's nothing about that that's, that's fair or honest. Well, wait, Robin, this is, you haven't seen anything yet, <laughs> or oh. I should say heard anything yet. Okay. So the next day, the dean of the school and the doctor who advises NYU on its COVID regulations, which are really draconian, the two of them emailed my other students without putting me on copy, telling them that I had given them dangerous misinformation and providing links to what they called authoritative studies from the CDC and basically telling them to believe those. All right. This is really an incredible subversion of my role as a professor. Mm-hmm. I never tell my students what to think, but they were telling my students what to think and sending them to the CDC, which you may remember until April was echoing the consensus of those other studies, right? Until April, 
Dr. Fauci and the CDC were saying masks don't work against respiratory right. viruses. Right. Don't bother. Then they, then they pivoted. Okay. I told my class this, but you know, it was one of the students who sent me this email. I wouldn't even have known they'd done it. And then the day after that, my chair called and said, you know, for the good of the department, it would be better for the department if you don't teach the propaganda course next semester. Okay, that's that's this semester. Now, I'm on medical leave. I'm not teaching anything. I have Lyme disease. And uh, the stress of this whole experience definitely made me sicker. Uh, yeah, because stre- stre- stress really adds to people. Because people with Lyme don't, they always have more than one infection going yeah, on. Exactly, exactly. Well, this is that's material for a whole separate show. Right, right. But um, at any rate, he told me, you know, you shouldn't teach the course for the good of the department. I said, well, why is that for the good of the department? And he said, well, your film course is always, you know, got a lot of students in it. So if you teach two sections of that, instead of one section and the propaganda course, it'll be higher enrollments and that's good for us. Well, that's fine, except the problem is the limit on both classes is 24 and I have the same number of students in both. So this is basically his his way of carrying out some kind of instruction, I think. They basically did not want me teaching that course anymore, all right? So I, I protested this. I, I said, I'm doing this uh, under duress, you know, because he has the right to do that technically. Uh, and I thought about all this, as, and and the more I thought about it, the angrier I got and the more indignant. And some friends helped me write a petition that's up at change.org. You can find it. Your listeners can find it. Basically urging NYU to respect my academic freedom. But it does so in the name of and for the sake of all those professors, scientists, journalists, doctors, whistleblowers, and activists who over the years, over the decades, have been gagged or persecuted for their dissidence on very urgent subjects. Now, this has reached the crisis point in the year of COVID. I mean, it's the censorship is mind-boggling now, but this has also been going on really since since the 70s. And so the petition basically said that, you know, my situation at NYU is a flashpoint in a much larger struggle. So please sign the petition. Uh, and help me move NYU just to respect my academic freedom. Okay, so a lot of very eminent people signed it. It's got over 30,000 signatures from people worldwide. Bobby Kennedy Jr. signed it. Oliver Stone signed it. Uh, James Galbraith signed it. Um, Ralph Nader sent me a letter of support. And that was all very cool. A month later, and this is where it gets absolutely surreal. A month after the student attacked me on Twitter, the majority of my department colleagues, including a number I had considered friends, wrote a letter to the dean demanding an expedited review of my conduct, claiming that though they believe in academic freedom, as people always say when they are attacking it, they said, according to the faculty handbook, if a colleague's behavior is, is horrendous enough, it can nullify his academic freedom. So this is basically a way of saying 
we think he should be fired, just as the student wanted. And what were my sins? What was my horrendous conduct? Well, this letter not only claimed that I discouraged the class from wearing masks and actually intimidated students who were wearing them, which is absolute fantasy, but that was just the beginning. They went on to say that I was guilty of explicit hate speech, of attacks on students and others in our community, advocating for an unsafe learning environment and microaggressions. I mean, was every sin in the social justice playbook? I was going to say, it sounds like they took all the propaganda words and mixed them into one big word salad, ridiculous sentence that means nothing. Microaggressions and... Microaggressions. I mean, what? Yeah, well, you know, I, 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 I can sit here and defensively insist that they're wrong. I mean... If anyone is interested, all the, all the, well, I'm giving the punchline away here. I think I won't. I'll just say all the relevant documents are up on my website and they include the over 50 letters of support that I've received from students, uh, and visitors, uh, to my classes over the years, all attesting to the fact that my teaching is the exact opposite of everything I was accused of doing with it. Uh, I am completely tolerant, open, civil. I let everybody say their piece. I never force my views on anybody. I'm probably the most open professor on this campus, which is saying something. And these letters attest to that. Well, anyway, let me proceed to what happened next. They they write this letter without anyone in the department even consulting me, that nobody asked me what I had said in class. Nobody had asked me about the substance of any of these ridiculous accusations. They went right ahead and wrote to the dean, and the dean writes to me and tells me, I have ordered this review without even talking to me. So I was a completely gobsmacked. I, mean, I didn't know what to do or think. I wrote to the provost, who was a rational person, and I said, what, what should I do? And she said, ask him, ask the dean for a meeting. So we met by Zoom. He was extremely vague. He said he demanded the review because the university's lawyers had told him he had to, which is actually untrue, because there's no legal basis for this review. And I said, well, what is this review going to entail? And he said, well, I will talk to people. I said, yeah, what people? He said, faculty and students. I said, faculty have never seen me teach. He said, well, we'll talk to students. I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to contact students and have them contact you with their observations on their experience of my teaching. And he said, okay. Sure enough. Yep. And he said, uh, I said, when will this end? He said, mid December. Well, it didn't end in mid December. Uh, it's still, it's still apparently going on now, but I think it's related to what I did next. I went through this letter with a fine-tooth comb, and I wrote a rebuttal point by point and demonstrated very clearly that every single charge they made was absolutely false. Every one. And I asked them for a a retraction and an apology, and they ignored me. Mm. I sent them a follow-up asking again, and they ignored that. Well, that tore it for me. I decided I, I can't let this go. This is completely wrong. 
this kind of thing is happening to people all over the place, you know, people on the right, especially the people on the left, doesn't matter. This has to stop. I'm going to sue these people for libel. Mm. And that's what I did. And this got some headlines and so on. That review never ended. It's, I guess, it's still going on. I actually don't think there is a review because I've never heard from any student who's heard from anybody in the dean's office. So I think that this was driven by a plan to get rid of me, probably a plan hatched at a higher level than my colleagues. Although my colleagues, I, I believe, I think maybe six of them have really had it in for me. And I know this now because in response to our complaint, they filed a motion to dismiss. And this is what I want your listeners to know. This is the point we're at now is a very delicate one. They filed a motion to dismiss the case basically doubling down on all the lies, saying that everything we said was substantially true, claiming that they did not intend to get me fired, which is patently ridiculous, and claiming that they did not make this public, I did, by sending out their letter to the dean, to my listserv, which I did, but it was my chair who tweeted his thanks to that student who made this a public issue. I'm talking to you now because I want people to know that the judge in the case could decide at any moment whether to grant the motion to dismiss, which if he does, uh, we will we will appeal the case, mm-hmm. or he could deny the motion, in which case we're going to proceed, or he could ask for oral arguments. But this is a very, very important case, because I have been hit with all three of the weapons used to shut people up in this country now, The first is to call them conspiracy theorists, as we've discussed, Mm -hmm. and my colleagues call me a conspiracy theorist. They say that I I make uh, claims based on no evidence, which is good coming from the authors of a letter that's based on no evidence. They also hit me with social justice propaganda, claiming that I engage in hate speech. And thirdly, they claim that I'm putting everybody at risk by discouraging mask wearing, which I didn't do. And that's the biofascist line that's used to shut people up. You are harming people by questioning these policies. I want public support. There is my petition at change.org, and there's also a GoFundMe page. You know, if people do a search for GoFundMe and Mark Crispin Miller and libel, they will be able to donate because I expect this is going to be a costly effort. And I want to make clear to your listeners that this money will go directly into an escrow account uh, managed by my lawyer. So I'm not going to be going off to the Virgin Islands with any of the money. I'm I'm in this uh, to win it for the sake of the truth, because let's face it, free speech and academic freedom are at grave risk today. Uh, well, and, that, and that's just it. You know, there's, there's your career and your legacy and your your honor that that's on the line, but there's also the bigger issue of preserving it, you know, or recovering intellectual honesty and just general freedom of speech and, and how ironic based on what you actually teach that you would be, that you would be so attacked. And so at such um, a a level of success in your career, a a proven track record of success and you know what? Shame on your colleagues for using their ridiculous social justice warrior words that literally have no meaning and that they're, they're, they're just, they're just waving around their little plastic swords. And you know what they're doing 
is they're, they're making actual hate speech. It gets lost. It's literally subverting the language. Like we actually need that word to mean something. That's right. Well, that's absolutely true. And I mean, I, I can talk about their, their evidence. I mean, if you read their, the exhibits that they submitted, um, you know, there's, there's tons of email exchanges among them that they submitted as evidence. And it shows that they have been exchanging, um, emails about me for years. Uh, I had no idea that there was this animus against me, you know, because of what they thought I was saying in class. Well, because, because you're not following the party line. They're, you're not following the social justice. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, is that the whole, like, I was never even paying attention to what, you know, liberals were doing or really conservatives either. I was raising kids and I taught at a university for many, many years at Brigham Young University and was, you know, running my business as a single mom. And I wasn't paying attention to just how insane what we used to call political correctness had gotten to the level of the social justice warriorism is uh, it's so completely ridiculous and embarrassing for, for people with any kind of intellectual substance at all. Just stop already. Should you happen to hear my show? Cause unfortunately I probably mostly preach to the choir because we've been siloed. You and I have been siloed and it's like, at least you have been able to teach at a university where you are getting students and instead of them just getting taught liberal party line, they're being taught to think. That's what seems to be in short supply here. But just, you know, that's a great opportunity. I get very discouraged by how, you know, I might have, you know, I think 130,000 people downloaded my interview with Judy Mikovits, but I think it's just the people who I'm preaching the choir, the people who already think for themselves and, 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 and all your colleagues, they have no idea how compelling the evidence is against what they've bought in on with mainstream media's and government's narrative. Well, that's absolutely right. They have no idea because they're incapable of that idea. You know, they can't take it in. It's, it's a kind of blindness that now makes me really understand how the Nazis pulled off what they did. I get, I completely get it. I mean, I used to be dismissive of comparisons like that. They struck me as sensationalistic and hyperbolic, you know? I don't yeah, think and how, so. how ironic that I, I didn't know that, that it was really the most educated Germans who got behind the whole scheme. Uh, that That's news to me, but isn't it ironic that it's Israel that is way out in front in creating medical apartheid and creating second-class citizens who are going to be banned yeah, public yeah. life. Well, I, it's, yeah, I just sent my list. You know, one of the things we deal with in the propaganda course most semesters is Zionism, because that's a very interesting, you know, subject vis-a-vis -vis propaganda. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have the students do reports and, and, you know, they, they, they learn a lot. It's really great. Just, just the other day, I sent my listserv, uh, it'll be up on my website, um, to, two pieces in one email. The first was a, an anguished uh, email from a guy named Yuri Weiss. <laughs> this guy is a Canadian Jew who uh, was um, born, I think he was born in Israel and had emigrated with his family to Canada and, and wanted all his life to return there. And this email is heartbreaking because what he has found going there now is what he calls a state of terror. You know, that if you're not wearing a mask, the cops will attack you physically. Wow. It is so bizarre. 
that this physically. has happened because yeah, physically it, it's brutal. And the, the COVID, the so-called COVID death rate in Israel has doubled since the vaccination program began. Yeah. Yeah. There's something wrong with those so-called vaccines. We have an Israeli government now treating the Jewish population the way they have always treated the Palestinians. Yes. The shadow of the Third Reich is heavy on that country, and it's that government that's doing it. Yeah, right? and they, now they know what it's like to live in an open-air prison. Well, yes. Because we all live in one now. Clearly, this is a global thing. Clearly, that's an example of what they want to roll out elsewhere. Uh, it's advanced to varying degrees in different countries and to varying degrees in different parts of this country. It has to be resisted. We must keep talking against it. It's okay to preach to the choir because you can give the choir more and more, you know, uh, reliable information, better arguments, because out there are some people who can be persuaded to open their eyes a little bit. I mean, many of them are hopeless. Their minds are closed as tightly as young oysters. There's no point in trying to open them. Can't do it. You'll break the knife. But I have to say, you know, to sound an optimistic note, that teaching has, for me, been a source of great joy and gratification and encouragement because the kind of student who would go to Twitter to demand my firing is extremely rare in my experience. But the most gratifying thing is to be told that I had actually taught them how to reconceive certain things, how to change their minds, how to open their minds, how to see the other side or sides of the story. Some of them call it a life-changing experience. This is not only gratifying to me personally, it's not just an ego thing. It gives me tremendous hope because these younger people are just not as, you know, dead between the ears as people in, in, Older generations, my generation, the boomers are hopeless, you know. These are the people who used to say question authority, right? Now they're saying. Well, absolutely. And, and I right. had, I had college professors who taught me to think. Um, right. I had been raised that the number one quality that I heard daily and that was praised in the home I was in and punished if we didn't was obedience. Obedience was the primary principle. And I had to go to college and grad school to, to learn that it was okay to think, that it was okay to question, and that's made all the difference. And so I'm really grateful for your work. Your work is important. Keep up the good fight because you fight for all of us who are speaking up about things that we should be speaking up against for the sake of our children's future. I'm really worried about my children's future. They think they're going to have a life that involves entrepreneurship and freedom and travel like I did, like what they saw me have. And they saw me as a single mom, start a business and be scrappy and build it from nothing to, to something. And, you know, at the peak of the, at the peak before the, this whole thing started 13 months ago, I had 35 employees and and now we, now we fight to survive. And so, you know, they, they have no idea what's coming at them and they have no interest in what I'm doing and think that I'm a ridiculous doomsday or conspiracy theorist. So I used to say, well, I'm doing this for my children's future, even though they don't, uh, they don't recognize the risk there, but actually it's just because it's the right thing to do. That's, that's all I've got right now is that I will, I will not do anything besides tell the truth, even at significant cost to myself. And you are doing the same and, and maybe even more so. I mean, I'll tell you. It's been astonishing to see all of the functional medicine and integrative medicine doctors come out 
And, and one of them is a Pfizer lab rat and joined the Pfizer trials as the father of integrative medicine out there. And his, it's disgraceful because his followers are literally autoimmune disease patients. And he says, well, I got really sick and got the fever and the chills and whatever. I was fine the next day. Don't worry about the autoimmune disease. There's no evidence of that. Just get your shots. And I think that's utterly irresponsible and in fact, horrifying. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I've noticed the same thing. I I had to go to Connecticut to get a test for Bartonella because you can't get that test in New York. Yeah. This was an office that was about as integrative and holistic as you can imagine. And it was, it was completely taken over by COVID paranoia. You know, the chairs were all 10 feet apart and you had to pull your mask up over your nose. You know, It, it, it just absolutely makes no sense. And, and it's true, you know, that, that, uh, I mean, yeah, we could go on and on about this. Superstition is what it is. What's ironic about all the intellectuals who are so all in and now they want to put a second mask on. And, you know, next thing we know, they'll, they'll be in hazmat suits. I don't know. Is that, you know, I mean, it's superstitious. They would be embarrassed if they were called superstitious. (laughs) No, it's true. It's true. Robin, I have to say one of the things that's challenged me, and I'm going to be very personal here. um, As I said, I've spent my whole, career, you know, trying to strengthen, uh, trying to realize American democracy. And I still believe passionately in the importance of doing that. You know, I think democracy is the way to go. And this whole horrendous experience we've had all these last 13 months has been completely undemocratic. You know, it's all based on fiats and edicts and executive orders. And you got Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates they should be dictating how we live, and they were never elected. At the same time, this experience, you know, especially being in New York City, being surrounded by people with these masks on, which aren't doing anything for them but weakening their health, they have their children wearing masks, which is just yeah. heartbreaking to me. Tragic. Unforgivable. You know, this this makes me wonder about, you know, whether people are capable of maintaining a democratic republic if they're so completely intoxicated by propaganda that has them doing such perverse things. And what this tells me is that fighting propaganda, teaching people to see propaganda is probably the best thing that at least a professor can do to try to protect what's left of democracy. Well, that's another, another reason to fight and keep up keep up the fight that you're doing because like I said, it's, it's important that it's about your career, but it, there's never been a more important time to teach people to recognize how they are being propagandized because, you know, as I was discussing with Tom Woods, where he said that 85% of the information we get is propaganda. And I, I have done Facebook posts where I, I would love to teach the class that you teach, except I would be in just as much trouble you know, to like go through it and point out how fact light or fact free a media yeah. article is. And, and my friend, my friends who graduated number one from their class at Stanford NPA, MBA, uh, MBA class or, or, you know, a, a PhD in rhetoric or whatever, they can't, they, they read this article and they come away with what the author was trying to get you to come away with, which is there's no facts here, but we would like you to be terrified. And they're using all these really um dramatic adjectives and i'm like adjectives 
I think that uh, like the news should be adjective light, shouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, it should. You're, you're so right. I mean, I, I had to stop getting the New York Times every morning, which was painful to me because I love reading a newspaper. I mean, a real newspaper. I still get it, even though, uh, like I literally just since the, this whole thing started 13 months ago, it comes into my inbox and I have to take deep breaths just to even look at the headlines. And it's rare that I can even open it because I see the headlines. I already know what they're doing. I can see what they're doing. They're just hype, hype, hyping media, uh, the, the COVID fear and hype, hype, hyping the vaccine as this, this magical thinking, even though Pfizer and Moderna and Fauci and CDC and World Health Organization state clearly, you know, they're, they're, they don't want you to like know about it. It's not like they're yelling it from the housetops, but they, they can't lie to you. They, they will state clearly that the Pfizer and Moderna trials didn't even test for whether people get infected or, or transmit. It's not even a vaccine. It no, does not, not prevent infection or transmission. Right. How is that even a vaccine? But all these people like lemmings running off the cliff all over the world want to engage in the magical thinking that if I just inject this garbage into my arm, I won't get sick. And it is a lie. Well, it is. Uh, did you see the news that Mike Yeadon, uh, this guy who is a former Pfizer vice president. Oh, yeah. He's, he's always, he's always commenting on my, he's in my uh, telegram group, my big telegram group. And he'll comment and I'll be like, Dr. Yeadon, come on my show. And then he just disappears. Well, you, you saw what he said yesterday, that he thinks that this is very possibly a massive deep depopulation. I, you effort. know what? Somebody gave me that quote today, and it's it's like it'll drop your jaw. Because this is a guy who was, I believe, vice president of Pfizer. This is a guy who sold a biotech company after decades being a vaccinologist and immunologist. And you know what? Here's the thing that all of these people have in common. Cause I had to watch and wait and like put the, put the, to connect the dots here. Dolores Cahill, Mike Yeadon, Knut Witkowski. You know what all these people have in common? These PhD vaccinologists, immunologists, they are either retired or independently wealthy. They already sold their biotech firms in the case of Dolores Cahill and Mike Yeadon. And it's not like they're out there yelling that from the rooftops, but they can. That's why they're speaking up is because they can. Right. And, and, and everybody who still has a job inside the institution and you do, and you did anyway. And, and I, you know, I can too. And it's cost me a lot. I had mass unsubscribes and people screaming at me and people writing negative reviews about me and reporting me to Facebook and whatever. And I didn't, I didn't, you know, stop, but I, you know, I won't say that I am not careful with my public figure page because, you know, that took me 13 years to get where we're at. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's people have jobs because of that page who work right, for me. Right. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I just, you know, go out there and scream whatever I want to on every single one of my platforms. However, I'm going to be speaking the truth till the day I die. This has made me that much more committed to it, even though it's painful. And there is not a day that goes by that I don't get called a conspiracy theorist. Well, there you go. To one of the most effective propaganda drives in history is was the introduction of that meme into the discourse of journalism. Yeah, and if anybody's listening to this and they're hearing me say this, stop calling people propaganda. Stop calling people conspiracy theorists. It's cheap. It's lazy. It, it's it's literally it's kind of like when people say to me about vaccines, smallpox, polio, mic drop. You know what? When they say that to me. 
that's how I know that they know absolutely nothing about the history of vaccines that right. I've been studying for 35 years. No, exactly. They don't know anything about it. But, but the better educated they are, to return to our pre- previous point, the more confident they are that they're perfectly informed, you know, that they're well informed because they read the Times and they read the Atlantic and they listen to NPR. And there, there is, as you say, a, a, a deep abyss. <laughs> you know, there's no knowledge there whatsoever. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, I mean, here's an example of the kind of ignorance. I have a, a former friend. I've lost a lot of friends, as you have. Uh, she is uh, actually, she works at the med school. And she was part of this discussion group online about the hordes of returning students, et cetera, and how they're jeopardizing our health and everything. And I had a separate exchange with her and I, I made a few points and she said, Oh no, no, these are, these are typhoid Marys. So I'm going to keep wearing my mask. Well, you know, typhoid Mary gave families typhus by cooking for them. You know, she didn't go breathe on them in a classroom. Yeah. Well, but, and, and that's, and, that's if the story is to be believed after. And, and, right. And, exactly. Years it, it could just be a legend, but the point is, unless she's going to have these kids, you know, with COVID come and cook her dinner and maybe, you know, <laughs> hawk a lunger into the stew, you know, and she, she, you know, she's skulking around with a mask on, you know, rebreathing her own pathogens. Uh, giving yourself hypoxia, you know. Nonsense. I mean, it, it's and, like, and to say typhoid Mary makes you feel smart, but it actually kind of shows the opposite. And I hope that you'll go like write this down and go listen to it. And we'll put it in the show notes as well, everyone listening. But if you haven't seen the valuetainment, I sure hope they haven't taken it down. The valuetainment debate between Bobby Kennedy and Alan Dershowitz. Oh, Alan yeah. Dershowitz, who is one of the greatest. Uh, attorneys alive, civil rights attorneys alive, an absolutely brilliant legal mind. It is a debate between Bobby Kennedy and Alan Dershowitz about vaccines. And the only thing that Alan Dershowitz knows to say about vaccines, his only argument was literally what I just said. Well, it eradicated polio and smallpox. And the thing is, I'm, I'm sort of a walking encyclopedia of data and statistics and knowledge and history about the vaccine industry because I'm vaccine injured and my oldest son was severely vaccine injured and we both ended up with long-term disease over it. Um, so it's just been a, a research interest of mine, but that is all he had to say. And Bobby Kennedy is, you know, has 10 times the just ability to data download about the vaccine industry, but he did it with such grace. Yeah. And, it was beautiful. you know, this kindness towards Alan Dershowitz, but everyone should go see that. And if you have a family member who's thinking of going to get the shot, you know, I mean, we just had a, we had a pregnant nurse sister, just go get a shot. And there was oh, nothing sure. that we could say that I could say, or my husband could say to my husband's sister who got the shot. All four of his nurse sisters got the shot. His, his, his elderly parents, who both already had COVID and are both already both very medically fragile, got the shot devastatingly ill. They were devastatingly ill after the first and the second shot. I even called my mother-in-law's medical doctor and begged him to call her and tell her she doesn't have to get the second shot because of her reaction to the first shot and the fact that she already had antibodies, she already had COVID, that everyone should go see the valuetainment um, debate between Bobby Kennedy and Alan Dershowitz. You must see it. It is so incredibly fantastic. But I don't mean to keep you forever, Mark. I will put in the show notes your um, your link to 
your change.org thing. And, you know, if it gets big enough, you know, Bill Gates owns that company and he'll, they'll, they'll literally pull it down if it's controversial and it gets big enough. But, but that's good. You've got it going. Let's just keep going with that. But also your GoFundMe because you really are um, fighting for our First Amendment rights. I think all of us. And so thank and also, you so much for your work. And, and and please include a link to uh, my my own website, markcrispinmiller.com, uh, because people can get my emails on a daily basis. And they can choose to get them as a digest each evening. Uh, I urge you to join. I'd like to keep in touch with you, certainly, um, because we can share information, exchange information that's, you know, otherwise unknown. And I often write little pieces uh, that people quite like. Yeah, I love that. So markcrispinmiller.com. We'll put that in the show notes. And then we'll get your, um, if you'll email us the change.org and the GoFundMe, we'll put that in the show notes as well. So you're amazing. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Mark Crispin Miller as much as I did. You know that our... uh, different platforms that we are on that we've spent our whole careers we influencers and authors and health and wellness experts um for some of us a decade and a half they're in jeopardy our entire careers are in jeopardy but we could literally disappear on the platform in which you hear my podcast at any given day and no one's going to tell you so please keep a lifeline if you follow my work with health and wellness for the last 15 years, please go to greensmoothiegirl.com and get on my newsletter list. And also, if you like my work in freedom, which if you're on the, if you're still listening to the vibe show, you probably like my freedom work for sure. Go to takeactionforfreedom.com and sign up to get updates. Thank you so much. See you next time. Mm-hmm.